Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, I just want to point out that it's taken a global emergency to cause me to change my music back to the old music. Many of you will be relieved and consider it a fair trade global pandemic for um, getting rid of the new music and the newer music and reverting back to the classic Coke of the old music. So um, apologies for the discombobulation. We will we'll work out our music problems as the, the end times proceed. But now I'm back here with my friend and partner in um, social distancing, Paul Bloom. <laughs> Paul, thank you for coming back. And it's good to be back. I, I like the new music. <laughs> I, I know you're getting a lot of pushback on Twitter, but I enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. The the amount of hate is unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I, I like it too, but even I recognize that there was a total mismatch between its upbeat vibe and some of the topics I was beginning to cover. And I just, coronavirus yeah. aside, the idea of dropping that music against nuclear war or child pornography or whatever else I had come in, it just seemed wrong. So. You know, I've known you for a while, and I've always wondered what you would do to cross the line yes, and it turns yes. out to be the music. Yes, the most controversial misstep I've ever taken. <laughs> That's right. So, are you social distancing? Yeah, I am pretty good at it at this point, I must say. I, it did not take long for me to um, snap into gear here, and this has been such a strange experience because, I mean, everyone must be experiencing this. At whatever point they began to take this seriously or began to notice the culture taking this seriously. The experience for all of us is of time compressing in this amazing way where, you know, three days, much less a week, seems like an eternity. I mean, you and I recorded our last podcast, I think we released it about 17 days ago on, on February 28th, and that now seems like a different period in human history. I think we hardly mentioned COVID. It, 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 things have changed so quickly. Well, I think we had recorded that podcast a few days earlier, like the 24th. Yeah. For my podcast with Nicholas Christakis, I went back and reconstructed my own psychological timeline because I was just interested to see when the dominoes began to fall for me and how out of sync I was with the culture and with many of my friends. It was on the 27th that I just you know, pulled the ripcord. So, you know, it was right after we recorded that podcast. So I, I must have been thinking about it then. But I mean, there's so many sources of stress here, and, and we, we can talk about them. But one thing that has been personally stressful is just to be early on this. You know, I can sort of almost set my watch by it. I mean, I've been essentially like a week ahead of where society seems to be at. And there's something really toxic about trying to convince the people in your life to take something that you're taking very seriously, more seriously. So do you feel that now people are on the same page as you? I mean, my sense is they're, they're about a week ago, people were in all different directions. Now, for the most part, I feel everybody is, is taking this extremely seriously, very worried about the Italian model, very worried about where we'll be two weeks from now. Do you, do you feel that yourself? Well, with some very prominent and galling exceptions, there are people you know, who privately are not taking it seriously enough, and I'm, I'm having to essentially attempt an exorcism on their brains, you know, you know just one-to-one -one you know, with a phone call. And then there are people you know, who have a public posture who are not taking it seriously, who I'm kind of back-channeling and receiving a lot of pushback. I mean, in some cases, total pushback. And it's very frustrating because you know, some of these people have enormous public platforms and 
it's just socially irresponsible not to have your facts straight at this point. And yeah, so some of this has been happening behind the scenes, and it's it actually connects with a conversation you you and I were having last time around loyalty and the obligation or pseudo obligation to treat friends differently. I noticed that if there's someone who's wrong in public about this, who I don't have a prior relationship with, certainly not not a friendship, I'm much more disposed to just kind of message at them, however harshly, in public. Whereas if they're already a friend, I feel like, okay, I got to go behind the scenes and try to get them to change their minds, you know, in private and then message something differently in public. And, you know, now that I'm confronting this in a pretty big way, I don't actually know what the right answer is. And do you have intuitions about that? It's a hard case. I mean, I think there's a middle ground. I mean, I've argued with friends of mine on Twitter. I've argued with you on Twitter about about issues where you could kind of intellectually disagree. And if it's all in sort of, you know, a positive atmosphere and with respect, it's fine. But this is a funny case because you want to be telling your friend here that he or she is doing something seriously wrong and, and you know, risking people's lives, risking people's health. And I can understand the reluctance to do that in public. It'd be better if you could persuade them in private. Yeah, yeah. I've certainly made a solid attempt and uh, come up short there for reasons that are just completely disconcerting. I mean, I actually have no theory of mind for why certain people don't get that this is a big deal. I mean, there are obviously some memes that are doing real damage to people's thinking here. And maybe we should just talk about why it's hard to grasp this problem and, you know, why it was hard to grasp it early and to change one's behavior. I mean, so one meme that I think has really been damaging is any analogy drawn to the flu. You have people saying, well, the flu kills 50,000 people a year in the United States. If we were paying attention to the flu on this kind of granular level, we'd be terrified too. We'd be in a perpetual state of terror and no one would leave their houses and we, we people would be insisting that schools should be closed but we don't do that and we're right not to do that so this whole coronavirus thing is insane and there are people who are stuck on that bad analogy who just don't understand i mean yes flu would be appropriately terrifying if every one of us were going to get it in a single month in the united states and we were going to crash our healthcare system right i mean flu is yeah, also a big right. deal but this is also by you know any rational estimation at this point, considerably worse to get than the flu. Now, whether it's six times worse or 10 times worse or 20 times worse, we don't know. But you know anyone who thinks that if you're under 70 or even under 50 and have no comorbidities, you're just going to sail through this thing without a problem, that is not what we're hearing from the front lines. And we're not even at the point now where we're getting decent data on the lasting impairments among the people who are, quote, recovered from this thing. I mean, there's definitely some reports of lasting lung damage and heart damage. And so there's just no question the analogy to flu is a bad one. And yet people keep making it. And And imagine that it's true that for, uh, imagine it turns out to be true that for young people, say, under 50, it, it will not cause much damage. It'll be experienced like a, like a bad case of the flu, and then you get better. Still, it seems to be bizarrely cruel to be indifferent to the suffering of older people. I mean, you, you might you could say to somebody simply, don't you have anybody 
over the age of 60 who you love, a parent, a grandparent, yeah. anybody who's, who's compromised in some way, who's not as healthy as you. Or you can simply say, don't even, you don't even have to imagine whether you have somebody in your life. Can you appreciate that these people's lives matter? And by you getting sick, even if you yourself are willing to take on the risk, the harm you could do to other people is, should be a factor in dictating your, your life choices. Yeah. And I think Nicholas Christakis made this point where if only out of you know, altruistic, positively social motives, if you just understood that you at your age in, in your cohort were just destined to be a carrier of this thing, you know, you still have to worry about, you know, every old person you are going to come in contact with. When do you decide to behave normally around your parents or your grandparents? If you're an asymptomatic carrier, you're just rolling the dice with them, you know, with, yeah. with their lives. So it's something to take seriously, even if you were guaranteed not to suffer much from this. So you, you've been talking to experts. And actually, I got to say, the, the episodes you had with uh, Amesh Adalja and my friend uh, Nicholas Christakis have been mm. excellent. I am not an expert on this. I know nothing about, except for the fact I've been reading Twitter nonstop for the last, you know, two weeks. But, but I am interested in the psychology of these things. And there's something about this situation which it has certain features that make it difficult for us to appreciate. So the causality is funny. We understand mm -hmm. that if you are sick and you are you are, are showing signs of disease and you make contact with me, there's risk, and I should you know avoid you from that. But basically, the way this disease works is you can be perfectly healthy and asymptomatic. And contact with you, though it doesn't seem bad, is still bad. This disease it shows signs of exponential growth. And um, we can look to other countries to see it happening. And that's a difficult concept for us to grasp. We look around, we see everyone's fine. We're all kind of going to restaurants and bars and everything's fine. This disease has no enemy. It's not as if we're dealing with a malevolent agent. We're dealing with this sort of, you know, unfeeling, unconscious virus. And for all of these reasons, we're not really suited to think well about it. You know, we look yeah. around, we see everyone's walk around, people are fine, so we assume we're fine. And it's only when we reflect and we look at other countries and we use our, you know, rational capacities, we understand the terrible risks involved. Yeah, but conversely, I mean, this should be the easiest emergency to orient toward. First of all, it's the easiest one to have prepared for in advance because it was guaranteed to happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's literally like, you know, a tornado if you live in Tornado Alley or, a, you know, an earthquake if you live in California. I mean, this is a point that Bill Gates made, like the threat of a global pandemic that was, you know, highly contagious and, you know, lethal enough to be of real concern, that was guaranteed to happen, right? And this is certainly not as bad as it could be. Whatever the outcome here, literally, even if millions of people die, this is still a dress rehearsal for something that is civilization canceling, which That's is right. certainly possible. guy, Adalja, when he spoke with you, kept yeah. saying, you know, this is fine. This is not such a big deal. Right. And, yeah. and he said it was clear he was comparing it to some sort of form of bird flu that would kill 60% of people who got it and would ultimately, you know, be, be a species extinct, extinguishing event. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it could be a lot worse right. look at it from that perspective. But when we knew this was going to happen, I mean, this was not, this is not even as hypothetical or as debatable as climate change. There's no alternate argument based on evolutionary principles that xenoviruses aren't going to 
jump into our species and mutate and in a matter of time get worse, right? So we just knew this was going to happen and yet we didn't prepare. And even when it's happening and we know we are failing to contain the spread and we're seeing this wave crash on the shores of other countries, I mean, even looking at what's happening in Italy, you still have people here denying the reality of this thing. And I mean, like, literally, did you see the photos from kind of the last night at Disney World last night? Yes. I mean, yes, I've seen, I've seen Disney World. I've seen pictures of Florida beaches. I've seen, you know, God. wild parades and parties. These are images out of a pandemic movie, right? I mean, this is like minute 33 in the pandemic movie. You have just a crowd of doomed imbeciles just fighting their way into the magic kingdom, right? It's just, I mean, it's... So, so what do you think is going on with the doomed imbeciles? Do you think it's skepticism? And I should say, I mean, imbeciles, you know... the government has to say? As I pointed out, I mean, I know some of these imbeciles. Some of them are quite smart. <laughs> okay, so the smart imbeciles, what's up with them? Is it that they're, they're just natural contrarians? Is it that they distrust what the government has to say? Is it, is it a political thing? I don't act. I mean, there there are certain cases where I, I really do not have a theory of mind. I just think I'm stumped. But in others, you know, as this thing was gathering energy for me in my life, and I noticed that I was out of step with the culture and with the people around me, I noticed that there was a marked difference between people who were very online and and people who are just not online yeah. at all. I mean, like the people in my life who just have never had a Twitter account. They have a very different information diet and a cadence of getting information on, on really anything. And, you know, so some of them were just totally oblivious. I mean, literally, I had, I had a, you know, very close friend, very smart guy, well-educated. Basically, he thinks he stays in touch with reality and, you know, looks at the newspaper every day. But he was aghast when I told him that he would be canceling his travel plans at a point when I would have bet my life, he was canceling those travel plans. I mean, it's just, there was no way those plans were going to go forward. And literally, it took like an hour of conversation and, you know, sending links and try, like just trying to get into his head around this. So there are people who are, who are not living in the year 2020 on some level with respect to information, but it also cuts both ways because I think the people who are very online can also get siloed into their preferred echo chamber. And, you know, the way the variable of politics is interacting here is pretty interesting because this is, when you look at what was happening in Trumpistan and, and on some level is still happening, you know, among Trump's fans, they've been so confused that they didn't even change their story once the president changed his. They yeah. seem to be denying the gravity of this even when he's forced to declare it's a national emergency. So it's, yeah, I think it cuts both ways. I think people can really be confused online, but sort of in the normal course of events, I felt that the people who were not on Twitter in particular just were not getting up-to-the-minute information. And that's a factor. There's a factor which, which was true, you know, a couple of weeks ago. It's no longer true, which is it really was siloed politically, which is the liberals, you know, were very concerned about the virus. And the fans of Trump were listening to him to say, this is no big deal. We have it licked. Don't worry about it. Right. And, you know, to his, you know, his very limited credit, he changed his story. And, well, and... I, think, I think he probably changed his story. Well, who knows? One major lever in his brain is what happens to the stock market, obviously. So he, he knew he, at a That's certain right. point, he had to message to the market 
this was interesting because this is this is not an irrational concern. I mean, the steel man version of the other side here is the panic is going to do more harm than the virus. What you don't want to do is crash the global economy because that has all kinds of other effects that actually do cost lives, right? People will die because the economy falls apart. If you're going to have a virus that even in the end might kill a million people in the United States, if you can absorb that blow without crashing the U.S. economy, that's much better than crashing it in a panic. And I totally understand that. I mean, no, I, you know, I've, I've never been counseling panic, but the problem we faced at every moment along the way here is that in order to do something that mitigates the problem at all, in order to do anything that flattens the curve, that spares our healthcare system, I mean, even if all of us are destined to get this thing, if most of us can get it once there are effective antiviral treatments, that's a completely different world. The right. only thing we can do to spread this out over time and contain it at all is to practice what everyone knows now is social distancing. But the paradox here is that in order to do the thing that will actually work at every time point, that thing will seem unreasonable at that time point. The time you need to close the schools is when no one you know is sick yet, right? At precisely the moment where everyone's thinking, oh, come on, we, we don't even know anyone who's sick. Why close the schools? And so it's just psychologically, it's almost a perfect exploit of our system. I mean, we just we That's can't right. be strongly right. motivated at a moment when the very action being counseled seems irrational. And, and by all accounts, we acted too late. The United States was too late. If, if we acted a week earlier, two weeks earlier, it, the situation would be much better coming up in the future. And, you know, nobody knows what it's going to be like two weeks from now, but, but the irresponsibility of the government in, in its behavior and, and sometimes ongoing irresponsibility, you know, that New York was very slow to, to, to respond, for instance, at the city level. It's going to have a cost. Yeah. But, but, you know, you're right about, I, I'm, so, so Yale, where I teach, has gone to online teaching and I'm scrambling to get on top of that and I'm doing, you know, social distancing and all that. And it's an inconvenience and it's difficulty, but there are so many people for whom this crisis is, is life devastating. Yeah. Loss of jobs, loss of businesses. You know, in, in Italy, you don't have funerals for, for your, you know, people die and they can't get, they can't have funerals. There are people who are separated from their children, from their families. There's, you know, cancellations of weddings, of critical life events. So I think any you and I are in, in some way very fortunate that we're yeah. insulated from the, the, oh, the yeah. true terrors of this event. But this is, this is going to, this is, is destroying lives. And, and I just wish we responded quicker. Yeah. And, and the concern about panic there was a needle that had to be threaded here, and, and I mean, we still have to thread it. And every day it becomes more important that we do it. But it's not that we need panic, but we did need to be more alarmed than we were earlier. I mean, the analogy I, that comes to mind here is really to wearing a seatbelt. Like, I find that you know, my anxiety around this pandemic is always at the boundary between where I'm either trying to convince someone that they should take it seriously or trying to figure out what I and my people in my family and my immediate circle should actually do practically. 
But once you've figured out what you should do, then there's, there's no need for anxiety anymore. You can dial the anxiety all the way down because it serves no purpose, but it really does serve a purpose when you need to be motivated to figure something out. And so, like, for me, it's like in the time when seatbelts were just being adopted, right, and, and people had to be convinced to wear them and they didn't like them and they wanted to feel, you know, free in the car and they didn't like the feeling of confinement. And I'm sure there were all of these idiotic conversations where, in fact, there was one person in my life about 20 years ago, a very close friend, still is a, one of my best friends, who did not wear a seatbelt, right? Now, this is like in the 90s. Yeah. He was not wearing a seatbelt. He was a, just a real outlier in my life. I could never convince him to wear a seatbelt. There was no argument that would work. And then he flipped his car and got you know, needlessly injured. Perhaps he would have gotten injured anyway, but he, you know, he was not wearing a seatbelt. And he, you can picture what, it, what a car rolling over does to you when you're you know, free to bounce around in it. You know, he recovered from his injuries, which is great, but he, he was injured enough to reflect on the implications of being loose in a car at speed. So now, you know, ever after has worn a seatbelt. So there are some people who actually do need to be shown the horrific pictures of car accidents, right? I mean, to get motivated to wear a seatbelt. But once you're motivated, once you understand the utility, none of us have to feel anxiety when we get behind the wheel of a car to motivate us to clip in our seatbelt. That gesture now is an automaticity. And I think the same can be true of a response to a crisis like this. I mean, once you figure out what you should do, well, then you can just do that thing. And all this ambient anxiety can be dialed down. But it's totally appropriate to feel it when you're just basically uncertain about what you should do. And you, you have mixed messages and, and you can't get you know, your friends and family on the same page. Anyway, that's how I see it. So I mean, I think, you know, anxiety, you know, continuous anxiety is obviously counterproductive. And we have a significant mental health challenge on our hands when you have anxious people living in isolation and um, watching the stock market bounce around and unable to work. Virus aside, this would be a very big deal for society. Yeah, people seeing their life savings drop and drop and drop and drop. Yeah. And of course, things, things are happening very quickly. I'm in, I'm in Toronto now, and the Canadian Prime Minister a few hours ago announced that Canada would basically be closing its doors to anybody who wasn't Canadian, or for a short period, American. And so, you know, it, what governments do, and how they respond, and what the restrictions will be on your behavior is a constant source of anxiety, how long this will last. I mean, in some way, you're right from a sort of, I don't know, the Buddhist perspective that that once a decision has been made, there's no point to being anxious. Yet, nonetheless, you know, it's an anxious time. Yeah, there's another yeah. aspect to this, by the way. You mentioned threading the needle. It, neither one of us is, is a fan of Donald Trump. And initially, what he did was he seemed, you know, relatively indifferent and unconcerned about the crisis. But there's another way I always worried he might go. And it wouldn't surprise me if he goes this way in the future, which is to rampant xenophobia directing hatred against foreigners, against immigrants, and so on. And besides being, you know, morally terrible, this will make the crisis worse. If, if people, for instance, if illegal immigrants, if, if or even, you know, legal immigrants are, are, don't have access to health care, are afraid to, uh, to enter the system, 
the situation will get much worse and not better. Yeah, I guess I don't really see the basis for that because, you know, if anything, Mexico should be trying to keep us out, right? That's I mean, true. I mean, once the scope of this contagion becomes more obvious, it won't seem like this is, you know, coming from Asia or, I mean, it's, now we think it's, from Trump's point of view, it's more coming from Europe, right? So it's really just, it's a human problem. I don't see how he gets, well, I'll tell you what, in the future, an appropriate demand, which could well be spun as xenophobic, but shouldn't be, will be a demand on China to close down these wet markets because yeah. they actually are akin to bioterrorism. It's negligence that is so obscene that it is almost an act of war. I mean, they are spawning these viruses. Anyone who's playing with a bat in one hand and a duck in the other is just a fucking terrorist at this point, whether they know it or not. So we have to clamp down on that. And I got to assume the Chinese government will, for all their authoritarian charm, they will see the wisdom of doing that. And it almost doesn't matter how they do it, right? It's like, Whoever's insisting that they need to play with bats needs to be dealt with in China. <laughs> okay, well, no, no argument there. Okay. Um, but I, I'm not as confident as you that Trump can figure out a way to um, make use of this crisis. I certainly think he can make use of it in some horrible way. In fact, there's, there's some report that he was trying to get a German drug manufacturer to move to the U.S. to produce a vaccine exclusively for the U.S. Even for Trump, that seems so... Car- I, I, I read the same reports. It seems so cartoonishly evil <laughs> Yes, I that only, only we would have the vaccine. It's like supervillain right. evil. And yeah. it just, I, I, I'm going to be skeptical about that. Yeah, but it I mean, wouldn't surprise me if Trump just used this for more build-the-wall rhetoric, even right. though you know, blaming Mexico for this is, is bizarre. But it wouldn't surprise me. Obviously, there's, there's some data on how unlikely you, we are to be able to contain the spread of a virus by stopping travel. But, you know, insofar as we have better information, it seems to me that does become more and more plausible. I think we, you know, internationally, we do need to be agile on that front. And without any imputation of xenophobia, we just have to say, okay, no flights for 10 days. Let's see what the hell's going on in that country of yours. So, I mean, that was the one move he made, which was I believe spun as xenophobic initially when he made it, although some of the spin turned out to be false memes circulated on Twitter. I think there was a fake tweet from Chuck Schumer saying that this is more racism from Trump. But I did support him canceling the flights from China just on the assumption that it might work. Now, it obviously didn't. And the rest of his messaging was so appalling and insane that he did much more damage than one might expect. But no, I, 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 could, I could see in the future Trump exploiting this, but I don't think the travel restrictions to date have been particularly xenophobic. You know, like I just said, Justin Trudeau is doing the same thing for Canada, actually mm-hmm. much stricter than what the United States has. And, you know, nobody sees this as a xenophobic move. Right. It's just designed, it's just designed to reduce spread. And, and so I, I've heard talk that there may be some domestic travel restrictions in the United States. It's a possibility. And it's not right. clear that's a bad idea. No, no. I mean, the painful reality of this is that this is a massive coordination problem. If we could all just agree to stay home for something like three weeks, we could actually extinguish this thing. I mean, leave aside, I I guess it's possible that 
people who already have it could be contagious for much longer than we might fear. I mean, I guess that's possible. You know, I don't think we understand the disease enough now to rule that out. But, you know, assuming this acts like many other viruses, we could just all hole up for three weeks and have this burn itself out. And yet we seem absolutely incapable of doing that. And for that reason, who knows when life returns to normal and at what cost. And the terrifying thing could be in two weeks, three weeks, we could be Italy. We could have yeah. our hospitals overrun and um, people could be dying for lack of medical care. So that's, that's the big worry. Yeah. And that's barring some fairly heroic social distancing. I think that it's reasonable to expect that at this point. So, I mean, certainly in parts of the U.S., I mean, in major cities, we've all learned a lot in the last few weeks. I mean, I had no idea that we only had 2.8 hospital beds for every thousand people in this country. And it's actually much lower than other countries. And it's much lower than Italy, for instance. And the fact that our hospitals already function at 65% capacity, it would be great if at tolerable cost, we learned every actionable lesson to learn from this. Just imagine actually becoming, you know, more robust in the face of pandemic as a result of this and realizing that our healthcare system needs to be reformulated. And I mean, there's so many things that are kind of breaking through now, universal basic income, yeah, you know, universal healthcare. It's just... Mitt Romney just suggested sending a check to every American. Yeah, yeah. Which, and it's not, it's not a bad idea. I no, think it's, it's, it's great. much better much more effective and much, much better than some sort of tax fiddling. Because if you send a check to every American, it'll mean more to poor Americans and rich Americans. While if you do a stuff with the payroll tax, it has the opposite effect. Yeah. Except I, I don't see in this case how it truly reboots the economy. Because if we're avoiding a potentially lethal virus and are wise to, and therefore don't want to go to restaurants, just giving people money to go to restaurants is not going to get them to go to restaurants. So the, you know, the restaurant business is going to suffer no matter how big that check is, except for you know, it'll help the people who are yeah. not working at, at their restaurant jobs. And, and who yeah. can't pay their rent. And yeah. So, yeah. so in some way, you, you've answered a question I was going to ask you, which is, it's been going around Twitter, people have been asking each other, so what are the, what are the positive effects of this event, mm -hmm. assuming we make it through? And one answer you gave, which I think is, is the immediate answer, is the right answer, is that it's a dress rehearsal for, for the next one, which could be much more serious. So we could go through some difficult times, but if we learn from it and know how to respond intelligently and appropriately and prepare, then you know when the next bird flu comes, we could be prepared. So that would be a plus side. Can you think yeah. about it? Yeah, well, there are many personally and collectively. Just collectively, this is a wake-up call on so many fronts. I mean, the, the idea that we don't want expertise anymore, right? The idea that we can just wing it with a reality TV show star and his buddies in charge of everything. You have to imagine many people who, for whom the downside there was just an abstraction. Yeah. Many, many people are tired of winning, I would say, at this point. <laughs> and um, just take specific examples like, you know, the anti-vax movement, right? I mean, just, just think of how nice it would be to have a vaccine for coronavirus right now. You know, Anti-vax people are very quiet now. Yeah, I mean, I don't know which has been harmed more, the cruise ship industry or the anti-vax movement. And I don't know which recovers first, but that argument is over, right? And 
you know, it should be felt to be over, and the indecency of it when it resurfaces should carry more opprobrium than it, than it has in the past. But also just understanding that there are problems we have that are global in scale for which there really is only a global solution. We can't be America first for global problems, and that lesson has to become indelible. The flip side of this epiphany, however, is that given how hard we've found it to be to convince ourselves that this pandemic that is just crashing down on us is worth paying attention to, I don't know how we get our heads straight around climate change. Just imagine if this were climate change, right? And you had reports out of Italy that climate change has arrived and the hospitals are full and they're having to triage patients and deciding whether a 45-year-old with two kids should live over a 55-year-old with three kids. And that's all due to climate change. And, you know, we, we can track its progress across the Atlantic and it's coming to New York and we still can't decide whether to, <laughs> to pay attention to it. That's the situation we're in right now. And yet, you know, climate change is this multi-year, multi-decade abstraction. If our psychologies are unprepared to deal with this, as they seem to be, at least in part, they are grossly unprepared for climate change. Yeah. Because, you know, here we have to be able to think forward to two weeks and see, here's what we'll be in two weeks if we don't act. You know, for climate change, it means 20 years, 10 years, 20 years. And it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult coordination problem. There, there's this line that I think Ronald Reagan was actually the first to say, but it's sort of a standard social psychology thing, which is what will bring the world together is, you know, an alien invasion. Yeah. yeah. Aliens attack, we'd all come together, we'd have a common enemy. And, you know, that might be right. There, there's some, you know, social psychology work suggesting a common enemy really does bring people together. But I don't think the virus cuts it. It doesn't seem to be having that effect and climate change doesn't cut it either. I think the common enemy actually really has to be an enemy, something, an, an intelligent, malevolent creature we could fight against. The, these, these causal properties of biology and physics don't seem to inspire us in the same way. Yeah, the time course is really hard to get your mind around. When you think about a slower moving problem than this and our inability to be motivated by it, that's pretty sobering. That's a nice way to put it. It's too slow moving. Yeah. It's, it's, it's too slow moving. And again, I think, put it this way, I think the people, whoever coined the term the war on cancer was kind of a genius. Mm. Wars motivate us. Wars excite us. Wars, wars drive us. And, and that's a, a useful metaphor. Now, it's not as simple as say, let's have the war on you know, COVID-19. But right. if we could think more that way, We'd probably, be, yeah. we'd probably respond better. Whatever the remedy is here, it, it's going to be recognizing once and for all how the free market is not optimizing for responsiveness to certain enormous problems, right? And yeah. the fact that we, we're noticing that our supply of mission-critical things is running low already, right? I mean, just the you know, ventilators. We're not going to have enough ventilators, right? And we get all of our drugs from China, right? I mean, just imagine somebody was, I mean, we we don't happen to be at war with China at the moment, but someone drew the analogy to, you know, just imagine if we outsource the production of all of our 
bullets, you know, all of our ammunition to China, right? And then we get into a war with China and we expect mm-hmm. them to supply us with rounds for our guns. I mean, it's just ridiculous that we don't have the infrastructure to produce specific life-saving things that we know we're going to need. So we, we have to figure that out. And the idea that we don't want big government meddling in our lives at these points is just insane. I mean, so that the libertarian fan fiction yeah. that everyone has been reading in Silicon Valley for the last 30 years, right? You know, all the devotees of Ayn Rand have to ream this out of their heads. You need a government big enough to handle problems like this. And pandemics turn us all into socialists. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and I've actually seen, I've seen some people on Twitter who are pretty libertarian and everything in there. <laughs> this is, this is, uh, this has been a, what is it, come to Jesus moment for them. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, that would all be good if all of that sticks. I think that's possible. But wow, it's been a wild ride. It's been a wild ride. It feels like living inside a science fiction movie and not a good one. So. Okay. So I think we've um, given people their um, daily uh, COVID-19 yeah, their COVID-19 dose. COVID-19 thing. But uh, we can turn to some other happy topics. Where we last left off, the thing we, that was destined to capture our attention was the change on the political landscape where it just it's you know it's now resolved to bernie and biden and um biden basically yeah and i just wanted to get your um take on i mean very few people are paying attention to it now but back in the day which uh, you know all of two or three weeks ago so we have biden as the uh, almost certainly the candidate going against trump and showing signs of you know neither of us is a neurologist do you have any clinical experience or are you purely research? Not, not the slightest. Okay. So neither, neither of us has any clinical experience. So everything we're going to say is really just informed by basic intuition. But his difficulty speaking, you know, it could be a, you know, purely a motor problem and not have cognitive implications. I mean, he clearly has memory issues that, you know, I would expect in any given hour, you know, I might have those issues. And yeah. I'll certainly expect to have them when I'm 80 years old. But and he has a history of stuttering. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it does seem to be more than that. I mean, he's definitely lost a step when you compare him to old footage of himself. Yes, that's right. But, I, I think he's not bad for a guy in his mid-70s. It's when you contrast him with people who are much younger that you, you see the limitations. But Bernie actually does seem much better. Bernie is a much more fluid, Bernie more is better, yes. irritating speaker. And there's the additional fact, which is maybe unrelated to senescence, that Biden is just a gaffe machine. I don't see how he gets out of any string of paragraphs without something that can be spun to his lasting disadvantage. In the in the debate last night, he encouraged people to go to his website, JoeBiden.com. <laughs> he, um, he, I think he also called um, the current crisis Ebola. SARS yeah. and several other yeah. All uh, Bernie did that as well. Policies. Yeah, they they both did that. It, it it is you know Biden would not have been my first choice, and you were right about his limitations. It's particularly stark in the Democratic debates when he was you know talking to people who were in their forties, and and the difference was quite striking. He's not my top choice, but I don't think he's going to fare that badly in the debates with Trump. He could be very aggressive. He's not a bad debater, and um. It'll be, here's the positive spin on Biden. It'll be return to normal, normal political life. 
he, he shows every sign of being a sort of standard democratic president, probably somewhat less adventurous even than, than Obama. And it'll be back to spending weeks without even thinking about who the president is. You wouldn't expect great things from yeah. Biden, but I wouldn't expect terrible things either. Well, and you'd expect that he's going to staff up with real experts yeah. in general, right? And and having and hearing him talk about the virus, the current situation, it gives you a reassured feeling of an intelligent person who will appeal to experts and and will will act in a rational way. Yeah. yeah. So so you know, a lot of people would be disappointed if he's the Democrat who wins because there'll be no revolution, there'll be no radical shift in healthcare, and I'll be disappointed too to some extent, but it'll be miles better than Trump, and it will be just sort of a normal, uninteresting presidency, as I would predict. That's the other thing that I don't think anyone, I haven't heard anyone remark on, apart from, I think this meme first came my way from Douglas Murray, I don't know if you know him, the British writer. I know, I know who he is. Really smart, right of center, and you know, often maligned as a Nazi because he's right of center, but he's very bright and a wonderful guy. But his point is that this status quo where politics is everywhere all the time, like on a daily basis, we're thinking about politics, talking about politics, people are drawing their identities from politics. That is a stark sign of social pathology. That is a sign that things are not going well if politics has to take up that much of an ordinary person's bandwidth. To have politics recede into the background would be a, a return to health of some sort. Do you have thoughts about his, um, his promise to choose a female vice president? Oh, I thought that was terrible. Perhaps it signals that he's already secured it with one of the people we, we know well now. So I guess it could potentially be Warren or uh, Klobuchar or Kamala Harris. But I just think saying that any other criteria aside, the person is guaranteed to be a woman, is just the wrong message to send. I mean, it sort of gets under the radar for us in a way that it wouldn't if he said, I can guarantee you that my vice presidential pick will be black, right? Huh. I think that would sound strange to people, or Asian, right? Just go to Asian. That would sound patently insane, right? So It'd be great to just pick a woman because that's the best person to pick, but just to telegraph it that way, for me, just sounds like he's got his priorities backwards. Anyway, that's, I mean, that's the way it struck me. Yeah, I see that perspective. I wasn't as bothered by that, in part because there are so many you know, competent female candidates he could choose from who would yep. be really good, some who I'd, I'd actually be very pleased if he chose. I totally agree there, but it's like, now if he chooses Klobuchar, Right. right. Now he's not choosing her because she's so great. He's choosing her because she's a woman. That's her primary characteristic. That's just demeaning, right? And it's, again, sending the wrong message. I mean, he could have just never mentioned this thing, never telegraphed, and then just picked Amy Klobuchar and just put forward the argument why she is the best person of all the possible people he could have picked. And, you know, people would have, you know, had sidebar conversations about, you know, her being a woman being an important variable. But for him to say it just seems dumb. It's almost as dumb as Elizabeth Warren saying, my next secretary of education will not be hired until he or she passes an interview with a trans high school student, or I forget what the phrase was. I remember that. But <laughs> I'm, 
I'm actually not sure it's dumb. You you may right. disagree with it, but but the people that Biden has to appeal to are right. young people. Biden Biden is, there, there's a huge demographic that he has to get, and it is the sort of claim that 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 I think a lot of people like, a lot of people would respect. So whatever you think of the sort of morality of him saying that, it's not clear it was a tactical error. Although it's not clear that it was an advantage over just announcing the woman who he had. That's met. true. That's true. He could have. Yeah. So what, what really bothered me actually is he, I, if I remember it right, he said he would have a, a, a black female Supreme Court justice. Right. And that just seemed, you know, there, there's a lot of great candidates, but it just seems to be incredibly narrow. Right. And, you know, he could have expressed this commitment to choosing a diverse candidate in sort of a more vague way, but the specificity of it was, was I think, a bit extreme. Just imagine adding another variable and then it becomes an SNL sketch, you know, a black woman under five foot four. And then what world are we in where you could want to target so narrowly, right? But yeah, I think we just have to break this spell and this could just be more aspirational than descriptive, but I think more people are eager to have this spell broken of toxic identity politics than wouldn't vote but to have those political fixations catered to, right? So I think there's more people who could vote for Biden if he just were totally sane and non-ideological on, on this front. You know, the people who had voted for Obama last time and switched to Trump could come back to Biden. I think the concern that there are people, you know, who are just not going to vote unless he plays connect the dots with their wokeness, that's a position just so masochistic. I just don't see the wisdom of catering to it. But who knows? I just don't know what is pragmatic here. But I do think we have to get out of this spot on the left where we feel like that's the message we have to send. We're not looking for the best people. We're looking for superficial diversity in every case. Yeah. I think there's a middle ground between being totally satisfied if the entire slate is, say, extremely old white men on the one hand, and on the other hand, zooming in and saying, you know, okay, I want, you know, a Hispanic lesbian for my secretary of state. Right. I think that there's a middle ground where you could avoid this sort of bizarre specificity, but also express some interest in, in getting more of, of a diverse government. I don't disagree with that. I, I just think that. There's something about making your motives explicit that subverts the graceful conformity with the norm. It's like if I went to your house for dinner, and of course I wouldn't do that now because you might have coronavirus, but in another period of history, when I go to your house for dinner, if I then two weeks later invited you to my house for dinner and I spelled out, yeah, I'm now inviting you to my house for dinner because you know I feel like I have incurred a debt with you because, you know, you cook me dinner. So come over here. It's not necessarily the most convenient time, but I got to discharge this debt eventually. To actually make it all explicit is just enough of a buzzkill that in some way the norm isn't actually being effectively instanced. And I think there's some of that in this diversity arithmetic that people are playing explicitly. For someone to know that they got the job primarily because they're a woman, that seems like a bad outcome. They're obviously super qualified women. You never have to say that you're looking for a woman. You just found this great person, and it's Amy Klobuchar. I think part of the problem with Biden, somewhat paradoxically, is he's not woke enough in that you can imagine somebody sensitive to diversity concerns like AOC 
who would have never done said that in such a clumsy way. Right. You know, would have expressed a broad commitment to diversity. Biden speaks like a guy who, like a very old guy who knows what he's supposed to do and tries to do it. Oh, yeah. And and that's why that's why it kind of came off so awkward. It's not his natural language. Yeah. Well, so much is not his natural language. <laughs> that's what we're in for. He's like these people who introduce the wife of somebody they're appointing for secretary of state or something and say, she's the real brains in the outfit. She's the smart one. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's been a With while since I've met such a person. Sexism with somebody trying not to be sexist. Right. Right. So that's it. Yeah. It's like there are things that have made explicit just prove that you're, you don't have the right worldview or things are upside down and you know, like you've got some world inverting glasses that you've put on and you're doing your best to navigate by them, but you're still deranged. So I was going to say to you what, I, what I've said to other people and what I sort of believe, which is it's kind of disappointing to see, you know, these two very, very old white guys being the ultimate end of the democratic nomination process. But I often forget that Sanders is Jewish. And, and you know, from it would be interesting to have a Jewish president to be a first, obviously. I would hope it wouldn't be Sanders, but, but that, that, that is a sort of nod to, to a sort of diversity that doesn't get discussed enough. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, he's Jewish, although he is actually surrounded by anti-Semites. I mean, there are people in his retinue who have terrible histories connecting to theocrats in the Muslim world and boycott, divest policies with respect to Israel. And so it's a mess there with respect to his Judaism. But yeah, it's true. Yeah, but that's the type of Jewish, the lefty socialist Jewish yeah. guy. Yeah, that's true. You know, everybody has an uncle like that. Right. It would be a victory of a sort. I can't actually say that I would care that we finally had a Jewish president. You know, I, I would love to finally have an atheist president. But again, that's a <laughs> good luck with that. That's a, a matter of ideas rather than identity. But some some have suggested you had that with Obama. Yeah, he, he did a pretty good impersonation of one who wasn't, though. I mean, he he did. He did. He won an openly atheist yeah. president. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think you're going to get a lot before you get that. So as you know, I went out on Twitter before this conversation and we got a we got a lot back, some of which we have already covered, but maybe I'll just, we should just look at our Twitter feed here and see if anything jumps out. There's a lot of people wanting that wanted us to talk about the virus and we made those people very happy. There were a lot of people who didn't want us to talk about yes. it at all. And they're extremely and happy to yeah. the second half of our podcast. Right. Yeah, apologies to those people. There's one jumping out at me here seeming to target my personal hypocrisy. I mean, maybe I should just deal with this quickly. So one person writes, this is uh, Victor Rivera. He's writing, Okay. why do I think that Candace Owens is worth straightening things out with, but TNC, that must be ta Coates, or Ezra Klein just can't be talked to? Okay, so this person is a little confused about what happened. Anyway, Candace Owens is someone on Twitter who has an enormous following who I noticed was tweeting this erroneous comparison between coronavirus and the flu. And she was basically saying that this is a non-issue. This just kills 81-year-old people in Italy. The flu is much worse. You know, get a hold of yourselves. Again, this is a, a kind of a clear example of the disparity in my behavior around going after someone in public or reaching out to them in private, because I actually don't know Candace and yeah. you know, never met her. And so I tweeted at her. I left a little daylight in my tweet so that she could actually see the wisdom of what I was doing. And she didn't. She got very pissed off. But then 
she actually DM'd me on Twitter, again, very pissed off, but it, that led to a phone conversation. And, and then I recognized, I mean, the one thing she was right about is that it actually would have been better for me to try in private with her first before I slammed her in public. And we did actually had a kind of meeting of the minds there. And then she changed her messaging, at least around that tweet. And she, she urged people to follow the social distancing advice of experts. And she deferred to my, my greater expertise on this topic than hers. And that was enough to mollify me, or at least to unring the bell that she had rung. My concern is, you know, I'm looking at a tweet there where, that I think is actually going to get people killed, right? I mean, it has massive engagement, you know, tens of thousands of favorites. And so it's, so I've got a public health concern there, but you you also said something nice about Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a, well, that's another one. So, but anyway, so this person is calling me out for burying the hatchet with someone like Candace Owens, who's a conservative and and a big Trump supporter, whereas I won't I won't do that with Ezra Klein, who I have feuded with, and I won't even talk to Tanahasi Coates. But he's confusing things here. Like Ezra Klein, I really tried with on my podcast for two hours and hit a brick wall. And, you know, so I know where that conversation went. And I have, you know, based on what I know of Coates, I can predict a fairly disastrous conversation with him. With Candace, I haven't invited Candace on my podcast and have no intentions to. This was damage I was trying to undo online. And it was not about, you know, picking interlocutors. It's kind of a category mistake this person's making. But with Nassim Taleb, I, do you know Nassim? Have you had any interaction with him? I, I, I had a I had a brief and unpleasant encounter with him. Hmm. How did that happen in person or it on social media? It was actually at a party in New York. It was it was just a very small exchange of words, and and I I, I think he blocked me on Twitter for something uh -huh. for. But I, I know I know you guys have had more extensive interactions. That was the painful irony of my reaching out to him on Twitter this time because, so he, for people who don't know, he's a kind of a risk analyst, statistician, essentially, and very famous for uh, the black swan concept and his book by that title. And and also a, a lovely idea, anti-fragile. Right, right. Which is a, you yeah. know, a, a lovely way of thinking about things. Yeah. So he wrote something about the need to respond to the coronavirus pandemic very energetically at every point, which would basically the point I made earlier that it will seem objectively too early to be doing this, this thing like closing the schools. But that's precisely when closing the schools will matter. He was at least, you know, hand waving in the direction of the, the mathematics of that. So I just thought it was a perfectly useful thing to spread. And the fact that the source was someone who has endlessly maligned me with an energy whose origins I've always found totally inscrutable. But he I mean, he despises me, seems to despise me and Steve Pinker more than almost anyone on earth. And he'll just wake up one day and tweet to his followers, you know, something awful about us, often in all caps. And I never know where it's coming from. It's not like it's in response to something I've just put out. But the irony was that when I decide to bury the hatchet on Twitter and, and tweet him praise, Many, many of my followers couldn't see what his tweet was because he had blocked so many of them. He's a <laughs> massive blocker of his foes. So that was kind of funny to see. But anyway, no, I'm a big fan of acknowledging 
when one's enemies, and I don't really use that word lightly, do something good. I actually did that recently with Ezra Klein. This tweeter's reading of the record is not, in fact, true. So, like, Ezra Klein just released a book, and he published an op-ed based on that book that I thought was extremely cogent, and I, I said as much on Twitter, even though here's someone who bears a lot of responsibility for the idea that many people on Earth who don't know anything about me, if they know anything about me, will think they know that I'm a racist asshole. It's because of what Klein has published about me, and there's been no apology coming from his side. That's the way I try to roll on social media, because I do think the source of good information ultimately is irrelevant, right? And so why not amplify good information, whatever its source? It's even more than that. There's some interesting signal value here. So if you, um, I don't know, if Richard Dawkins says something and you say, oh, this is a thoughtful point, it's, it's, it's the informational value of your endorsement is less mm -hmm. than if you say that about somebody who despises you or who you despise. Yeah. Because, you know, in the second case, you're arguing against, you're, you're, you're sort of moving against your own interests. Exactly. You know, it, it means a lot if you say, if you tweet, you know, well, Donald Trump is really doing the right thing here about something. That's exactly right. So it's signaling something, like in this case, it's signaling just how important I think the information is. If Nassim Taleb is pushing something out there and I'm amplifying it, that means a lot of people think there's a consensus on this point and it's important to get it into your head. And also there's, actually there's a, now that I think about it, just psychologically as a matter of my experience, there really is great satisfaction in finding a deeper value that allows you to let go of a grudge or forgiveness is its own topic. And I can't remember if we ever spoken about that and, and we probably should, but I mean, forgiveness is its own thing that is obviously extraordinarily important. But this isn't quite forgiveness because in truth, I haven't quite forgiven Nassim Taleb or Ezra Klein because I don't think they've changed. They haven't apologized for anything. I view them both as still untrustworthy, right? Nothing's changed there with respect to our relationship. But if you have a friend in need and you come to their aid, that feels one way. If you have an enemy in need and you come to their aid, there's like an added level of moral satisfaction to it. This isn't a situation of really coming to these people's aids, but I've been in that situation with other people before where like when I've seen someone who I have this with, where the relationships have been totally burned, but where I've in another moment found a reason to support them. I'm sure there's a, some German word that's <laughs> the inverse of schadenfreude that yeah. names this state of mind where when you recognize that your enemy is being wronged or is in dire straits in some way and you feel the impulse to come to their aid and it feels like a truly morally pure motive unencumbered by any other thing that normally is giving topspin to one's sentiments. It's interesting to unpack that. There, there's a very nice way to unpack it. I mean, different spiritual traditions give special value to loving your enemy, to thinking well of your enemy, wishing your enemy well. It's a very, you know, exalted state. Mm. I wonder also, though, you know, and don't take this wrong, but it's kind of a, kind of a power thing, which is 
if I could go to my enemy and say, hey, that was really great of you, you know, I wish you well, and so on. It, it's in some way broadcasting to yourself, to the enemy, to the world that, you know, they aren't hurting you. They don't mean mm. much to you. That's true. It's a kind of virtue signaling, I guess. That's right. You have the spare moral resources to do this, right? Even though it might be confusing to your audience or to your circle or whatever it is. And I guess, I mean, I'm trying to th- try to map it on like, what if I did it? I have defended Trump, right? I mean, there are definitely cases where when I see the left criticizing him for things that seem fallacious, you know, or, or it's just mistargeted, I, I do rise to his defense just because I, I feel like liberals need to actually be accurate. Otherwise, it just becomes a, a circular firing squad. But when I defend Trump, I don't feel this satisfaction. This is a search for sanity more than anything else. But it doesn't suggest a power differential between me and the other person. It's just, it's the power of just kind of advertising one's own moral resources, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's, it's also interesting just in general how people respond to attacks to cruelty by others to misrepresentation you tend to acknowledge it which i kind of like you tend to say this person has treated me poorly and you're upfront about it right i know other people who adopt a different strategy there's a mutual friend of ours who simply doesn't acknowledge it simply you know will if you ask him what do you make of that awful thing these people said about you said i didn't read it don't care right and and that's that sort of style as well. I'm sure there's stuff I, I haven't read. So I mean, that, that can often be true of somebody, but yes. when they have read it and they say they haven't, that seems strange. There's a distinction here with respect to the Candace Owens incident on Twitter. So, because people often think that what I'm responding to with somebody like Ezra Klein is that I'm offended or that I've, I'm being petty. And it, it really isn't that. I mean, I, I don't know what petty person can be counted upon to admit when they're petty. But there are experiences where I I certainly can be petty, or I I have been petty in the past, but this isn't that. So it's like with Candace Owens, you know, she came back when I went after her on Twitter, she came back with just, you know, rank insults, right? She insulted my age, and she called me a loser, and there were some private insults as well. It was all insults. But I feel zero temptation to take any of that personally. That doesn't get under my skin at all, right? And that's one reason why this was so easy to resolve, right? Like her coming back, calling me a loser, even in front of millions of people, zero problem with that. The thing that gets under my skin, as now everyone knows, because I rattle on about this ad nauseum, is the calculated misrepresentation of my views, right? It's like when someone's attributing views to me that I don't have, and even when it's cleared up, they don't apologize or don't correct the record. That's the stuff that drives me crazy because that is just a kind of misinformation about me that comes at real reputational cost. That's the places where there's been a real breakdown of relationship and, you know, something like a grudge. Is there a strategic choice on your part what to do in these cases? Because you got to be, you got to avoid a, a sort of a Streisand effect where, right. where in the course right. of responding to it, you amplify it. The truth is, I, given the way I'm, shepherding my attention now, I I probably won't notice, or I'm noticing a tiny fraction of that kind of thing happening. So I'm never feeling the temptation to respond unless it's kind of in tweet form. Like if somebody has tweeted at me and I can just decide whether or not to tweet back. That's that's really what it's come to. It's all been distilled down to what happens on Twitter. Yeah. We got exactly one tweet integrated at the end here, but there was something, I think you said 
that there was some blowback from our last discussion about pedophilia and did you notice something on Twitter that we had to address here? Yeah, several, several people were upset by the discussion. And I think, I, if I remember right, they were upset because either you or me talked about pedophilia as a sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what the technical term sexual orientation is used, but it is, it is certainly an orientation towards being sexually aroused by children. To, to yeah. say that doesn't mean approving of it. I think, you know there's a taxonomy of what people are interested in sexually. Some of it is totally fine. Some of it is not. Some of it, you know, if you get turned on by having sex with unwilling people, that is a sexual orientation and a type of sexual desire, but a terrible one. But to say that this is how people are, are constituted, you know, is just a statement of fact. It's not a statement of approval. Right. No, I think we made that totally clear. I mean, I think I even said, I, I dimly re- recall saying something like, you know, this is a sexual orientation, albeit an unethical and illegal one. So the orientation part is just means that this is where someone's attention is fixated. We were talking before about unsympathetic and hostile readings, but the idea that we have to be explicit to say, and we're against pedophilia, it seems right. to be, you know, you only need to say that because some people just are... are unkind in their interpretation. Actually, it occurs to me I have a moral intuition that I was surprised to stumble upon that you might have an opinion on. We can close on this. <laughs> this. This is also terribly dark, but I seem to be in that kind of mood. So someone sent to me, this is also back to the coronavirus pandemic, so <laughs> there's only so much we can... the coronavirus and pedophilia. Yeah, we can only struggle against the twin tractor beams of coronavirus and pedophilia only so much before we're captured again. So I don't know if this is true. I can only imagine that something like this is bound to be true, but this was being circulated online that there are people under these conditions of quarantine and social distancing who are going door to door, pretending to be like from the health department, and then robbing people who open their front doors. Jeez. And I found that like that triggered in me like a sense of moral violation that was, it just seemed one notch worse than many, many other things that on their surface seem similar or even worse. My first response was, okay, those people should just be executed on the sidewalk. There should be just no trial. Like any homeowner who finds himself in that situation and shoots these people, that's just fine. Under conditions of this kind of collective fear and, you know, solidarity, to be preying on people in that way, just struck me as, I mean, I don't know, it's like, I mean, it's, it was just my immediate reaction to find in myself a, a reservoir of condemnation that was deeper and more energized than, than I, I had found for on many other, you know, similar, even seemingly worse transgressions. So it's funny you should mention that because I heard yesterday of a similar scam where they would phone you up and they'd say, you know, Mr. Bloom, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your, uh, your test has come in positive. You have the coronavirus. If you give us your credit card information, we could send you the antivirals pills to take that will make your disease go away. All right. Oh my God. And when I heard this, you know, it, in some ways it's your standard credit card scam, but it seems so much worse than anything else. Yeah. It, made me, it filled me with this rage that people would do this. Yeah. There really is an evil genius that comes online in these moments. I mean, you hear 
the kinds of manipulations that people think of. And it's just, it'd be interesting to dissect psychologically what makes these examples worse. I guess it's because what it is, is it's the opposite of the the solidarity that we experience right. in common tragedy. It's the opposite of altruism. Yeah, it's actually leveraging this collective moment where on some level people's guards are coming down because we're sort of we're all in this together, right? It's a little bit like we can remember how things felt after 9/11 when, you know, there was just in some in some ways this is a different moment, but there's something about there's kind of a purity to like okay, we're all figuring out how to deal with a collective danger and to then to use that solidarity as an entry point to scam people or worse that just yeah it just seems like a double violation yeah that that seems like a good analysis most of the time when i answer my door or pick up my phone i'm kind of wary these are strangers i'm dealing with and i'm not naturally open to strangers but in this special time we shift to a different mode where we we trust more we hope to reciprocate we're all in this together and then there's something particularly evil about somebody exploiting that yeah yeah well on that happy note paul <laughs> there we go <laughs> this is the mood elevating conversation that everybody was waiting for that's right sunny days well it's got to go up from here <laughs> yeah <laughs>